Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, they had asphalt for mortar, and they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they have all one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Uh, in the book of Genesis, I think I've mentioned this before, but it's, it's uh, important to understand the divisions and what has happened. Here is your friend. Joining us? Sorry, there we go. Um, it's important to understand the divisions in this book. Um, there's one repeating phrase, it happens ten times, and it divides the sections of the book of Genesis up. Uh, in, uh, so we know what the topic is. And it, it begins, our translations will say something like, uh, this is the book of the generations of, uh, the book of the generations of. Some translations will say this is the history of. Really the word is told of, which means that which brings forth. It can be a generation like a man brings forth the next generation, uh, but it's kind of like our word generator. What's generated is up to the text and what's going on. So really a best way to translate these things is here's what the sons of Noah brought forth. Here's what Terah brought forth. Here's what uh, Esau brought forth and so forth. In this section, for example, this goes back to chapter 10, verse number one. And the chapter 10, verse one, number 1 says, this is what the sons of Noah brought forth. And then chapter 10, of course, is the 10 nations, or the 70 nations, and where they settled, and how they divided up over the earth. And then it backtracks and gives us the Tower of Babel. Um, this is out of order, because the Tower of Babel should have come first, um, back when the earth was all of one language and one speech, and then they were scattered abroad. Uh, but instead... The writer here, Moses, is contrasting the Tower of Babel with the next section. Because as soon as this section ends, in chapter 9, the very next verse is, this is what Shem brought forth. And then that goes down to narrow it even more to this is what Terah brought forth. And Terah was the father of Abraham. And so Terah is the beginning of God singling out one family to restore what was lost in Eden. So that's the theme of this, and that's where I'm going with this tonight. I want to talk about two ways that uh, we can approach the subject of how to fix what's gone wrong. In Eden, if you remember, uh, man, men, men and women were created to have dominion. They were, king, they were image bearers of God. Uh, therefore, everywhere they went, even now, everywhere you go, you can go to the most uh, uh, mentally ill, damaged person on the street and if he's got a living space he will try to bring some kind of order to it whether it's a picture that he found that he sticks on the wall or something arranged in order or everything laid out in his bags it's human nature to make order of our surroundings 
Um, this is the remnant, as twisted and as warped as it is, of the dominion mandate that was given to mankind, have dominion over all the earth. Um, man was not given dominion over other men and women. It was just over the earth. Men and women were to have dominion. They were to spread the beauty of the Garden of Eden throughout the whole world. They were to have image bearers, children of image bearing children and image bearing children and image bearing children. And this dominion and reflection of God's nature was to spread throughout the whole world. We've talked about that before. And then the first sign that something has gone drastically wrong is men began ruling over women, ruling over each other, um, and things became about dominion and power and control until it was so corrupt God destroyed everything in a flood. And then this is what the children of Noah bring forth. And here at the end of what the children of Noah bring forth, we have this desperate attempt to make a name for themselves. So they're building this tower and this city and this civilization. And here's something that I've never seen before. I've, I mean, it's struck my imagination from the time I was a kid, but I never made this connection. Notice out of everything involved with building a city, Moses only mentions one thing, brick and mortar. And why do you think he would mention brick and mortar? Let's go back. Who is his original audience? He's talking to the nation of Israel in the wilderness who's just been delivered from Egypt. And what was their job in Egypt? Making brick and mortar. They would have known exactly what Moses was saying. He didn't have to spell it out. Whenever you have a kingdom being built on this earth, whenever you're building the Tower of Babel, this beautiful, glorious city full of all the merchandise of all the earth, somebody's got to make the brick and somebody's got to make the mortar and somebody's got to bear the children and somebody's... And so immediately the world is divided up between the Egyptians, the Egyptian men to be more precise, and to be more precise than that, the most powerful Egyptian men who have the best choice of the harems and the best choice of the slaves and the best choice of the buildings. And then you have everybody else, all the people that have to make the brick and make the border and all of the oppression that comes from that. So here there's this attempt to build a name for ourselves, attempt to build this city. And this is, remember Genesis is the Greek word, the Greek word for beginnings. This is a book of beginnings. It starts with in the beginning. And so here we have the beginning of the kingdoms of this world. And it goes, it traces the history that this, it's, the scripture of course is all real history. But every single kingdom is exactly the same. You have the Assyrians, you have the Arameans, you've got the Babylonians, you've got the Greeks, you've got the Romans, you've got every city is exactly the same. It's the oppression and crushing underfoot while the wealthy get wealthier. And there's all the allures of the city. You have the, the beauty of the music and the beauty of the sounds and the lights and the flashing and the, and the seductive allure of Babylon that the book of Revelation describes. But underneath that allure and underneath that flash, you have the crushing of the, those making the brick and mortar, the crushing of the women. Every dream of a powerful man to have his virgins of 70, a harem of 70 virgins, ends up with 70 image bearers of God being oppressed, 
degraded and locked in a room. It's two different ways of looking at the same thing. God sees the heart. And this is not the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of the flesh. One thing a friend of mine reminded me of is this is the way that we still build kingdoms today. You can't honestly look at the history of America, the United States of America with its wealth and its power without also doing something to deal with the genocide of the California Indians, um, the, uh, the slaughter that was just horrendous, the enslavement of African Americans, the slaughter of, of indigenous people all across the country, heartless, cruel, vicious, hateful things, how women were treated, how children were treated. Because when we read the history of the country from a glorified perspective, we're reading what? We're reading the history of the ascendant power class. But underneath all of that is the bricks and the mortar that has to still be made. This is what Moses is getting at here. And God is always at work in these kingdoms. He will not give his glory to another. The end result of all the kingdoms of the earth is found in the book of Revelation when Babylon the Great is destroyed. And you remember all the, all the descriptions of Babylon the Great, all the gold and all the silver and all the women and all the dancing and all the songs and all the marriages and all the feasts and all the joy and the crushing, hateful oppression and slaughter that's all underneath the whole thing. The hatred of God, the whore with the blood coming out of her mouth. Um, it's just this vicious portrayal and God casts them all into the lake of fire which is also our salvation. So keeping all of those things in mind, then when you see that, it's futile to try to determine who that kingdom is called Babylon in the book of Revelation because it's all of them. It's every single one of them. And now I'm going to say something that's going to sound a little bit controversial. In the last 2,000 years since Christ has come into the world, the Christian church has attempted to build Christendom. That's the kingdom of God using the bricks and mortar of Babylon. And it ends up the exact same way. Can you name one successful Christian nation that didn't involve oppression and death and slaughter and murder and even Geneva ended up burning Servetus at the stake? Um, there's, a, there's this, it's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is completely different. And so there's a contrast. This is a good segue. So don't start throwing eggs and tomatoes at me until you understand what I'm talking about. First of all, it's very important. Yeah, do what we can to bring justice and mercy to our neighbors. Vote for people who are wise and can make good laws so we can live peaceably in all godliness like the scripture tells us. Pray for those in authority over us, but don't ever confuse it with the kingdom of God because that's only the that's the only way to, the only end result of that is bloodshed and slaughter and death every time. So, God has a different plan. This is the kingdom that's based on promise. So now go to the next chapter, Genesis 12, chapter number 1. Now this is in the section, what did Terah bring forth? And it talks about in the last few verses how God calls Abram, God calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, the exact same place that um, the, the Tower of Babel was, whenever that was in history, and how far the distance was between Babel and Abraham, we don't know. Um, but God calls Abram out of that same place. And he says this, 
Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Look at what God is promising Abraham. God is promising Abraham what the men of the Tower of Babel were trying to get. But it failed. God is promising Abraham a different sort of kingdom. And here, this is just the beginning of it. This is the beginning of a new word to mankind. A beginning of, just as God created everything with the word of his mouth, so now he is making a new creation with the word of his mouth. Gives a command to Abraham. He doesn't tell him where he's going. He just says, go, I'll show you when you get there what it is. And Abraham goes. This dynamic throughout all of scripture is used to describe Abraham's, the promise to Abraham and Abraham believing it. And so now we have a bit of a clue as to what the scripture means by the word faith. Faith isn't just this thing you work up in your heart where you believe in believing. Um, it, it always makes me smile. I don't have a big objection. If you got this, this is great. But you see people in their house and they'll put up this really pretty sign and it says faith. But me, what goes into my head is faith in what? What are you believing in here? And I don't know if they actually stop to think about that. But in scripture, faith without an object is just nonsense. Faith means God gives a promise and we believe it. That's what faith is. That's how it was described in Abraham. God gives Abraham a promise and it says, and Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So Abram, verse four, so Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were there in the, then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, still going on toward the south. Abraham is probably one of the most significant men, um, apart from Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, so I'm not including him in this poll, um, but one of the most significant men who's ever lived. His name has to be dealt with with every religion in the world. And so it is. They have different interpretations of what he did, but they have to deal with Abraham. And yet the funny thing about Abraham is his life is, on the one hand, it's contradictory, and on the other hand, it's very simple. Um, he was not a great king. He didn't own land. He didn't build a city. He didn't write a book. He didn't amass to himself followers. He was famous for one thing. He believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, God calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees, and when God called Abram, Abram is still part of his world, part of this corrupt world fallen by sin. Abraham is still a sinner. He still thinks like they do in Babylon. 
look at the evidence here. He's going to progress as he goes through his life. He's going to learn more and more. But he comes out of Haran with all the slaves that he bought in Haran. He's got his wife. And if you're thinking that Abraham is a good example on how to treat your wife, then please don't get married. Uh, give me a call and we'll talk through some better examples. Um, because God always uses Jesus as an example, not Abraham. Um, so there you go. Um, this is Abraham. Um, God calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees. Well, and the Chaldeans, we know, as soon as the Tower of Babel falls, they go back building the city of Babylon. They're still doing the same thing. But God chooses one guy and he gives him a promise. In this promise, he's saying, the Tower of Babel, all these kingdoms of this world, are all going to fail the same way because I am actively fighting against them. Notice how he scouted their tongues. And the evidence from Scripture, spelled out explicitly in the book of Zechariah and then echoed in Revelation, is that God uses what we call the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Death, famine, war, disease, hurricanes, um, all of those things to restrain and scatter the city of Babylon. He always does. He always has a stronger army that will eventually come along. He's never out of control for a moment, but the city of Babylon is allowed to exist side by side with the people of God. And the people of God have almost always been in Babylon, oppressed, small, weak, trembling, fearful, and yet planting an extremely powerful seed. This is the beginning of this. Abraham, this is his thing. Abraham believes God, but he's still a sinful human being. Years go by. He eventually decides, well, this is, a, this is the amazing thing about God's promise. God didn't tell Abraham to build a tower. Um, and God didn't say, hey, go build a kingdom. And God didn't say, hey, win Babylon over for Christ. God told him to come out of there, and God gave him a promise. I will make your name great. Eventually, he says, I will multiply your seeds. Kings will come from you. And throughout all of Scripture, the promise of the kingdom of God comes by what Paul says, promise, not by the flesh. We need to understand, in order to understand Paul's distinction of flesh and spirit, we have to understand the life of Abraham. Babylon is of the flesh. It's a bunch of men that got together and built a tower, crushing and oppressing one another until God put an end to it and scattered them. Abraham falls into this trap. The kingdom is going to come by promise. And as a sign of that, Abraham is barren. Sarah is barren. There's nothing they can do about it. You cannot make your wife have a baby if God doesn't open the womb. You can't do it. And so Abraham is not going to build a kingdom by the flesh. It can only be by promise. And that's how God is illustrating to Abraham this is how the kingdom is built, by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Eventually, Abraham will panic. He'll follow Sarah's really bad advice and take Hagar, and they'll have Ishmael. 
And Abraham will just assume that Ishmael is the child of promise. But Ishmael didn't come because of God's promise. Ishmael came because of a fleshly act between Abram and this servant girl. And as Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. This is the problem with what we're seeing today, at least in America, when politicians are talking about encouraging women to create an army of Christian babies. Um, that was a, in a speech just a couple of days ago. A whole army of Christian babies and churches are baptizing converts by the thousands in their bathtubs and, and preachers are calling for militant fecundity uh, where you have a whole bunch of different babies. But here's the thing, if this is the way the kingdom is being built, the very next step is polygamy, multiple wives and harems, because women's bodies are limited. And so the best thing to do then is the Mormon route, which this is basically the Mormonism, the Mormon way. Gather to yourself a, a harem together and have a whole bunch of babies. But here's what happens every single time. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. All you're going to do when you have a bunch of babies is have a bunch of sinners. All of them inheriting the lusts of their father Adam. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Somehow we've gotten off track in the church and we're starting to build the wrong kingdom and that's why I'm speaking harshly and directly so I'm hoping we can catch this. We have to follow, uh, we have to look at history and learn from history and learn the difference between the two kingdoms. Harems are one way to have a whole bunch of babies but it's not the kingdom of God. Paul makes this distinction between the children that are born of the flesh and the children born of the promise using this example. Remember when Ishmael was born Abraham's body was still working, Sarah, uh, Hagar's body was still working and so they had a baby just like billions of other people have had babies. Babies are a wonderful gift from God but it's not the kingdom of God. In order to see the kingdom of God you must be born again which is why we baptize our infants. Because we're confessing when we baptize our babies that this is not the kingdom of God, but God has made a promise to us that if we believe the promise, we will be engrafted into Christ. Flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And that promise is given to us, to our children, and to all whom the Lord will call. Anyway, that's another story and I won't get into that. So Paul is talking about the distinction between the child of the flesh and the child of the promise. When Isaac was born, Abraham and Sarah's bodies were both dead. It was not possible for either one of them, according to the flesh, to have a child. God had intervened miraculously. And this is giving us a clue as to what the kingdom is. It's God that builds it in his time. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 9, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. It's not because Abraham had children that they're called his children. But, as God says, in Isaac shall your seed be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Babylon, of every description, depends upon wealth, money, power, control, and numbers. The bricks have to be made, the mortar has to be made, the tower has to be built. The kingdom of God is based only on one thing, God's promise. 
And the in and out of the kingdom is, do you believe the promise? If you don't believe the promise, you're going to do whatever you can to overcome the curse according to your own opinion, doing that which is right in your own eyes. The end result of that is the end of the book of Judges. But God is preparing a king. That king will execute justice and righteousness and loving kindness in the earth. He will gather his children together. He'll utterly destroy the wolves that destroy and devour. And he shall reign forever and ever. The verse, of course, that came to, comes to mind, um, I'm rehearsing Messiah, and so I have this in my head all the time. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and a government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, and when the angels are singing that in heaven, I, I, I don't know if they're going to use Handel's tune, but I, I hope they do. Um, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. But listen to the last line. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now let's put it in the context. In the context, Ahaz, the heir to the throne of David, an unbelieving king, he's been completely sucked into the mindset of Babylon. And so now he's thinking about how are we going to make treaties and beat these guys. The Arameans in the northern kingdom of Israel are going to beat me. They're too strong for me. But Assyria over here, I can sign up with them and we'll make a treaty. And so all these treaties and all these intrigues are going around. And Isaiah is sent to tell him and to remind him of this promise. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Not you and your treaties. Not you and your power. Not you and all of that. Remember the first promise was, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is all the same section, the same prophecy from Isaiah, answering Ahaz and his wicked desire to establish his kingdom on the earth. And of course, because Ahaz rejected the sign, rejected the promise, and didn't believe any of it, and went right back to what he was doing, he died. But God's promise didn't fail. Because soon the child was born. Soon the son was given. This is the development of the promise made to Abraham throughout all the centuries. I will make of you a name. And all of that eventually comes down to one person, the beloved son that God sought in Adam and didn't find. God sought it in Israel and didn't find it. Remember when God delivered Israel from Egypt and he said, um, Israel... Israel is my firstborn son. Thus saith the Lord, let my people go. And then they failed and they disobeyed and they rebelled against him over and over again. Why? Because they didn't believe the promise and they never learned to rest. Instead, they were always trying to build bigger walls, to make bigger treaties, to surround themselves with more power, more wealth, more women, more children, more on and on and on and on. And the first one, yeah. People hate this, but it's true. David, even the man after God's own heart, fell right into that same kind of ruin. But when Jesus comes into the world as the king of a completely different sort, a king that conquers with a sword coming out of his mouth, he's coming to call a people to himself. 
not coercion with the whip and the prisons and the slave camps. That's how you build the kingdoms of this world. That's not Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is not built on the back of slaves. It's not built on the back of genocides and slaughters and destruction. It's built on his word. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that promises to everyone. Everyone. Jew, Gentile, male, female, bond, or free. This king, the Lord Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father. There's the title that the kings of the world were always looking for. He's gathering his people and he's uniting them to himself. So that each one of us, when we're united to Christ, are united to Abraham's seed. We are actually, literally, the seed of Abraham and the fulfillment of this promise. Because we're engrafted into Christ by faith. This, remember when John said to the Pharisees, don't boast the fact that you're children of Abraham. God is able of these stones to raise up children of Abraham. When you think about that, that's quite a trick. You raise up a stone, but then you trace his lineage all the way back to Abraham. How on earth do you do that? And that's exactly what God did to you and me and all the Gentiles in the world and even the unbelieving Jews that have been brought into the fold. Jew or Gentile alike, we've been brought into the fold, and then by the Spirit, we're united to Christ, flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, so that we are children of Abraham, blessed. And we now have, in theory, what the people of the Tower of Babel were searching for, a name for ourselves, unity in the bond of peace, we're not scattered abroad, except for one very important detail. We have fellowship with God instead of God as our enemy. We're not crushing and biting and devouring one another. But it's also not yet. Today we're still scattered in Babylon. This day is still coming. It's coming because God will provide it. And the day is coming when we'll see the Son of God descending from heaven. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because Babylon will be destroyed. But the people of God, the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth, this promise given to Abraham, it's a new kind of mountain, not the Tower of Babel. Abraham saw this by faith after he had, uh, after God held the hand that was after he was sacrificing Isaac and God held the hand back and then provided the lamb to take the place of Isaac. Abraham calls the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh, which means God has seen to it. Some of the translations are God will provide, but really the Hebrew is God will see to it. And I love that. God will see to it. In the mount of the Lord, Abraham said, God will see to it. That mount where that happened with Isaac was the mount where eventually Solomon would build his temple and eventually Jesus would enter that temple on the same mount. It's called the Temple Mount today. And God has provided the sacrifice. He's not only provided that, he's provided the Mount of the Lord, which is Mount Zion, where Jesus is reigning forever and ever and ever, providing for all things. As the writer of Hebrews says, you've now come to Mount Zion, an innumerable company of angels, the city of the living God. You see, this comparison of the church compared to the fallen, corrupt, useless Tower of Babel,
don't get the two of them confused. Babel is scattered and fallen and in ruins, but the city of the living God will never be corrupted. And so now, on this earth, Christ has come. He's gathering his people together. But just like Abraham, man, we want it to go faster, don't we? We want things to turn out a little bit better than they do. We want this, and yet we have to do what Abraham did and just say, you know what? In the mount of the Lord, God will provide. One other thing I want to bring out before we close. At the end of our passage, it says God, or God spoke to Abraham there, and Abraham built an altar. We see this with Abraham all the way through. He's building an altar everywhere he goes in Canaan. In other words, he is dedicating Canaan as the kingdom of God when God fulfills his promise. He's offering this sacrifice because he knows somehow that the sacrifice and the kingdom of God are connected. And he wasn't looking for the fulfillment of this promise during his lifetime, the writer of Hebrews says. He knows that the land of Canaan was just a token for the new heavens and the new earth. Remember that whisper of Eden. The new heavens and the new earth has been corrupted. It's now under the control of Satan, the principalities and powers of the air that Paul talks about. And Abraham is the only one. And yet in faith he's building sacrifices. He's building altars. He's offering sacrifices. And now when we say, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided, the kingdom of God is being built the same way through the blood of Christ that sprinkles all the nations. We proclaim it, we believe it. It is never ever built by politicians of any kind, by judges, by building institutions, by building churches. Those are all good things. We, we can argue that maybe there's worse things that have happened from millions of dollars in building programs than just meeting in homes. I don't know. That when you build a million dollar building, all of a sudden you have to use the same tools as Babel. And is that compromising your message? I don't know. Those are questions beyond my pay grade. But it seems like the church has lost its way. It got frightened and started building Babylon instead of preaching the gospel and holding on to God's word by promise. We forgot that it's the zeal of the Lord of hosts that does this. That it's... Uh, God will see to it in the mountain of the Lord. And we quit offering our altars, our sacrifices by faith. Instead, we started building the buildings, building the walls. Never works that way. And so the encouragement today, two things. One, believe the promise of God. God will build his kingdom. That sets you free to love your neighbor to lift your head up, to be joyful, to not fret the, the, the world of the evildoers. It's exactly what God says is going to happen. So that's the first thing. Hold on to that promise that Christ has completely forgiven your sin and taken away your shame, and He's you are flesh of His flesh and bone of His bone. And the second thing is, lift up your head when you're wandering pilgrims aimlessly and alone here on this earth, and remember, in the mount of the Lord, God will provide. He has provided, he has seen to it, and he will continue to see to it. And the day will come when he will come again, and Babylon will be no more. That's a beautiful thing. Let's close in prayer, and um, then I'll take any questions if there are any. 
our Father in heaven, what a glorious thought. Our sin is taken away, Christ has conquered, and now by faith we see him. We see the word still being proclaimed throughout the world, even in this little Bible study tonight. We see all over the world people listening and hearing and believing your word. What a tremendous thing. In the unity of true faith, your kingdom is being built, not with swords and slaves and bricks and mortar, but with the proclamation of the gospel. And we pray, Father, that you will lift up our heads, give us faith and peace and hope, fill our hearts with love for one another, love for the outsiders, love for the lost, love for those that are still searching for their name, that they might come to know the name which is above every name, the King of kings and Lord of lords, our Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, any questions?